Thank you, Angela and Randy. Thank you so much. Uh, we sing about amazing grace, don't we? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And if you're newer to church, uh, it's a favorite. You might hear it at a funeral or something like that. But if we're honest, isn't it true that we don't always want grace? Isn't it more true that we really want this? <laughs> you know, it's amazing to me, you don't have to be a baseball fan to know that the biggest story in Major League Baseball this year is not about a pitcher hitting, you know, a, a brilliant no-hit game. Sorry, I'll get that right. A brilliant no-hitter. It's really about a second baseman, the Texas Rangers, giving a big hit to baseball's bad boy. Now, baseball's bad boy is Jose Batista. If you haven't heard, he's uh, been viewed as a very dirty player. And here, second baseman, Texas Ranger Odor, Gave him a big punch. It's been called the punch of the century already. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I think it's telling. It's, you know, the biggest news of baseball is not a pitcher hitting a no-hitter. Right? It's this. And I think it says something powerful about who we are. There's been this amazing outpouring of satisfaction across the country. Have you heard it? I mean, everyone has just been rejoicing in this. Bad boy gets his desserts. In fact, there is a Texas barbecue restaurant, true story, that Texas second baseman, because Batista slid into him recklessly trying to hurt him, this Texas barbecue restaurant has offered second baseman of the Rangers, second baseman Odor, free ribs for life. <laughs> true story. And if that's not enough, uh, if you're into uh, rappers, uh, rapper Joe Budden put this picture on the release of his new disc. So it tells us something about our culture, doesn't it? It says there's something within each one of us that wants to sort of settle the score. We want life to be fair. We want to get even. Isn't that true? And we sing about amazing grace, and it moves us, but we kind of have a hate-love relationship with grace. Come on. Isn't that true? Grace is amazing. It is, but it's also annoying. It can be, at times, actually infuriating. We like when grace is extended to us, but we're not as excited about when grace gets extended to others, particularly if they've hurt us. Grace may not always be our way, but what we're going to see Jesus in the text that he teaches us this morning is that grace is God's way. Grace is the hallmark of Christianity. Grace means getting something we don't deserve. And grace is what sets Jesus apart from all great teachers, all great religions, all great faiths. The question is, why is grace so amazing? That's the question. And if you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel. It's the first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 20. If you've been with us a while, you know that as a church family across our campuses, we've been exploring Matthew's Gospel. Wow. And we have repeatedly encountered Jesus' brilliant teaching on the good life. Jesus is in line with all the great philosophers and teachers of antiquity. What is the good life? What is true? What is good? And what is beautiful? And Jesus walks into that reality. What is the good life? How is it found? How is it experienced? What is it? This is Jesus' focus. Matthew, the gospel writer, presents it to us. 
Now, in this text this morning, we're going to see that Jesus tells us that the truly good life is the grace-filled life. In Matthew chapter 20, we're going to encounter an amazing story or a parable Jesus teaches, and embedded in a parable are these three truths about the good life, particularly about grace. And I want to give them to you as they flow from the text. If you're taking notes, that might be helpful if I scoot over one kind of quickly. These are the three truths. First, Jesus will say, grace is always available, always available. And on the heels of that, he will say, grace is always, always unfair. And as he builds to his literary crescendo, he will say, grace is not only always available, it's not always unfair, it's always, it's always not fair, it is always surprising. So that's where we're heading, let's dive in. Chapter 20 begins, if you'll notice, if you have your text open, that Jesus is cluing in his listeners that the story he is about to tell is like a metaphor of a comparative window. He wants us to look through it and see something really important for our lives. Jesus is basically saying, the good life I offer is like this. Once upon a time, there was a landowner who owned a vineyard. And Jesus describes the landowner who goes into town and hires workers five different times during the day. Now keep that in mind, that's really important. There are workers he hires the first hour, the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, and the eleventh hour. Think of it like this. The first ones are hired at like 6 a.m. After 6 a.m., that's the next group, 9 a.m., the next 12 p.m., the next 3 p.m., the next 5 p.m. Cultural context, quitting time is around 6 Got it? So that's the flow. Now, Jesus' first century culture is unfamiliar to many of us. In our 21st century, we are not just usually hired for a day. We're hired for a salary or a longer period, unless we really goof up bad the first day. That's like one day we work, right? We don't want to do that. But in the first century, that was the norm. Uh, in an agrarian context, workers were hired per day. Each day was different. Now, not too long ago, I was driving through Central California. It's a major place of agriculture. And uh, I noticed along the way, as I had, there were stops where migrant workers, farm workers who are migrant workers, were waiting to be picked up to work that day in the farm on the fields of Central California. That's much more the picture of the first century world. Now, keep that in mind as we walk through this story. What we need to grasp right away is that the first century listeners who heard Jesus describe this owner going into hire workers five times during the day would have seemed very strange. Because in the first century, workers were hired in the morning. That's it. And Jesus right away clues his readers into his story and he weaves a striking abnormality into the fabric of his story. Why is it abnormal? What is going on? Again, the vineyard owner clearly knows how many workers he needs. He decides that the night before, and he goes right away in the morning to hire his workers. So the big question, the big interpretive question of Jesus' story that raises tension is this question. Why, or we may say culturally, why on earth... Does the vineyard owner keep going back for more workers? That's the big question. 
Now, Jesus tells a story that is embedded in first century economic life. This should not be surprising to any of us. If we remember that Jesus understood this world of everyday work. The vast majority of Jesus' time he spent on planet Earth, about 33 years, 30 of those was spent in the marketplace. He knew this world well. The majority of time Jesus spent on planet Earth, he spent working as a craftsman, making things. The gospel writer Matthew uses a Greek word that describes often translated carpenter, and certainly Jesus worked well with wood, but he also probably worked well with stone. A way to look at it with his guardian father Joseph is they were contract builders. We know from archaeology that one of the biggest building projects of the time was Sephorus, which was really close to Nazareth, just north, and most likely Jesus was a part of that building project. The point is that Jesus understood this world. Jesus and his human guardian father Joseph most likely hired day laborers to help them in their carpentry shop and in their contract business. Jesus was a small business owner. We need to grasp this. He understood this well. This was the world he inhabited. His story reflects that. It reflects the goodness of the marketplace, of work, the economy, of wages and work. He's all over that. That matters. Jesus' story reinforces the dignity of human work itself and the importance of economic life. As a craftsman, Jesus knew his work mattered and he knows your work matters too. Now, while reinforcing the goodness of human work in the story and in an economic context, Jesus' primary focus in the story, though, you ready, is not the workers. It's really the employer. Jesus' parable, if you have a Bible, sometimes above the Bible, you have over this parable, which is really unfortunate, the parable of the vineyard laborers. If you give a title to this parable, it should not be the parable of the vineyard laborers. laborers. It should be the parable of the good and compassionate and generous employer. That's the focus. Bless you. When we grasp the first century context of Jesus' story, we clearly see that by the very act of hiring, the landowner extends grace to all workers. So here Jesus gives us a glimpse into his economic thinking. The ultimate bottom line in Jesus' economy is grace. Grace is the kingdom currency. In other words, he's saying in the good life, you can't get very far without it. See, often the classical definition of economics is defined as the allocation of scarce resources that have alternate uses. It's a classic definition. But here in Jesus' economy, there is no scarcity. There's no scarcity of grace. No matter the time, no matter the place or circumstance, grace is always available. Grace comes to us in different ways in different times. But Jesus is saying, grace? Yeah, you can count on it. Thomas Friedman wrote a book a couple years ago entitled The World is Flat. It's a great book. I recommend it to you. And uh, he observes that the 21st century, because of rapid globalization and technology, has a massive flattening effect. His point is this, that a more level playing field is emerging across our globe no matter where you're born in terms of economic opportunity. But Jesus in the first century gives us a flattened world. There is a moral flattening here, and the currency of grace flattens it out. That's the idea. 
In other words, grace is available to everyone. That's why it's so amazing. But notice the second truth emerges in this surprising twist in the story. As the sun begins to set, it's time for the vineyard owner to send out his manager and to pay his workers. Now notice the text. If your Bible open, verses 8 through 12. Look with me there. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Okay, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Hmm. It's not in the text, but that's exactly how they responded. Hmm. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they immediately grumbled. The picture there is they said things under their breath. They didn't want to say out loud because it was so vile. They grumbled under their breath at the master. Then they say, these last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the scorching heat of the day. And we respond with them, what do you mean? The workers who arrive last and work the least are paid first. Not only are they paid first, they're paid the same amount as all of us. And we say together, that's not fair. Right? And here's where we discover the second truth. Grace is always unfair. See, Jesus makes it crystal clear. He almost gives them a jab. That the owner is deliberate, the employer is deliberate in wanting all those who worked all day to see the grace he extends to those who worked less than they did. It's almost as if Jesus is rubbing it in a tad. Now notice in the story, Jesus particularly focuses our attention on a contrast, a riveting contrast between the first workers, the first hour, 6 a.m., and the 11th hour workers at 5 p.m. Do you see that? <laughs> Not only did they work 10 hours more than the 11th hour workers. I mean, he's really focused on these first hour workers, isn't he? They work during the scorching heat of the day. See, the vineyard owner's actions at first blush seem scandalous to us. But what is scandalous? Now, let's put ourselves in the sandals of the first-hour workers. Imagine how you would feel. Walk with me back to the first century. I'm sure there was a Starbucks there. You're at Starbucks, and you worked an eight-hour shift. Your fellow worker who has just arrived that day has only worked the last two hours as a trainee, and he gets the same pay as you or she. Or many of you have gone back to school. You're, let's just say you're a full-time teacher. You work long hours during the year. You're preparing all summer. And the school district hires a substitute teacher to work one day a week to fill in. And you are given the same yearly salary. Hmm. Or you are a salesperson selling, let's just say real estate. Great thing to be selling. Even at the end of the year, your numbers are five times more than the next salesperson. 
but your company gives you the exact same year-end bonus. Or students, I know you've never had this happen, but you feel like this sometimes. A fellow student turns in a one-page scribbled handwritten paper, late as an assignment. And you have a 20-page perfect paper you handed in on time, and you both receive a A from the teacher. How would you feel? See, we have the sense and it's woven into our labor laws and union principles, equal pay, equal work. And that's a good thing in our economy. But in Jesus' economy, in the good life, the currency of grace is of the highest value. Now hear me carefully. Grace doesn't balance the scale of fairness. Grace makes the scale of fairness irrelevant. Why? Because when it comes to God and what he requires from each of us, we all fail to measure up miserably. At first blush, the vineyard owner's actions do seem scandalous, don't they? But when we look a bit under the surface, a little bit closer, Jesus wants us to see Whose actions are really scandalous? Is it the scandalous grace of the employer? Or is it the scandalous ingratitude of the first hour worker? See, all through the day, the first hour workers think they've earned it. That they're doing the vineyard owner a favor, but it is the vineyard owner doing them a favor. The work they have been given to do, no matter how long or how short, in duration or difficulty, is a sheer gift of grace. Isn't it fascinating that the silence of some of the workers speaks louder and echoes louder in the story than the first hour workers who grumble loudly. The third hour workers, the sixth hour, the ninth hour workers, there's no hint of them comparing themselves with eleventh hour workers. They are just swimming in gratefulness for their job and the generosity of their employer. We must not miss The silence of those workers speak louder than the grumbling of the first hour workers. In the Jesus economy, grace is unfair. It is. It's always unfair. Jesus is saying, basically, if you are looking for fairness, don't look to me. And don't look to the God of Holy Scripture. You ain't going to find it there. You won't find fairness. Mm -mm. You'll find goodness. And Jesus, I think, is actually saying, you don't want a God who's fair, do you? Because fairness would put each of us on the road to hell. For that is what 
sinners like you and me rightfully deserve, every one of us. When I hear the grumbling of the first hour workers here in Jesus' story, I cannot help but think of my favorite literary work, it's Les Mis. And if you've seen Les Mis or read this brilliant novel, you know that embedded in it are two contrasting characters. The grace-filled Jean Valjean and the graceless Javert. And the lyrics of Javert in one of his most brilliant songs in the lyrics entitled Stars paints this dark picture of a graceless life lived out trying to balance the scales of fairness. Listen to the words. And if you fall as Lucifer fell, you fall in flames. And so it must be. For so it is written on the doorway to paradise that those who falter and those who fall must pay the price. Javert and first hour workers look at life and say, those who play must pay. And it's easy for us to want to identify with Jean Valjean, isn't it? But I think there's a lot of Javert in me. I know there is in me, and I bet there's a lot in you as well. See, if we're transparent in our life, it's more about paying the price than receiving grace or extending grace. Let's be honest. We are drawn to grace, but we also at times resent it, don't we? Sometimes... Like Javert and these first-hour workers, we find grace rather annoying because we don't feel it's fair. And grace is humbling, isn't it? That's why we resent it. We can't earn it. We want to be self-sufficient. We want to be in control. We want to have the last word. But grace, by its very definition, does not allow us to cling to our self-sufficiency or self-righteousness, but to cling only to Christ who extends grace to us. Grace, at its very core, is paradoxical. It is the most liberating act of free, unconditional grace demands that the recipient give up control of his or her life. That true freedom is found not in being in control, it is found in not having to be in control anymore. Do we resent grace or will we receive it? Jesus tells a remarkable story similar in the Gospel of Luke. We see it, story of the parable of the prodigal son. We've heard about that parable, right? The story is of two brothers, again, a kind of Jean Valjean, Javert world. And you remember the older brother, the Javert in the story, is resentful against his father and his younger brother when his father gives his younger brother grace. We are so much like the older brother who have in our minds categories of sinners that are not like us. How they live, what they do. See, the heart of our prideful resentment is not a problem with grace. It's a problem with God himself. If we grasp the gap between my sinfulness, your sinfulness, and God's beautiful holiness. It's so unimaginably massive 
that the matter of our sense of fairness is put into proper perspective. It'd be like, I love the Grand Canyon, it'd be like this. Jumping from one, one rim of the Grand Canyon to the other rim. You know, it really wouldn't matter how much you could jump. Right? You could jump three feet or 20 feet. The distance is so massive, no one's going to make it. Everyone has to be rescued to get across. Can you imagine how silly it would be if those who jumped 20 feet resented those who only jumped three feet? Can you imagine the 20-foot jumpers grumbling at those who jumped three feet and saying to the rescuers, that's not fair. (laughs) See, God's grace is always unfair. You can't earn it. You can't be prideful because of it. You can only be grateful because of it. God's grace is always available. It's always unfair. Notice how Jesus ends this story. And that is that God's grace is always surprising. Always surprising. Jesus' story ends with the owner graciously defending himself in front of the grumbling first-hour workers. I just love how this employer calls even his resentful workers, notice the text, his friends. It's a very tender word. The vineyard owner gently reminds the first-hour workers that it was grace that motivated him to hire any of them at all. He didn't have to choose any of them, but his sovereignty and generosity are worn on his heart, his good heart. Look how Jesus ends his story in verses 15 through 16. He says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity so the last will be first and the first will be last? For those of you, and I hope all of you who love literary beauty and mastery, do not miss how Matthew frames this. Matthew wraps the entire story in the repeated paradoxical statement Jesus makes in chapter 19, verse 30, and 20, verse 16. Do you see it? And Jesus says this twice, the last will be first and the first will be last. Within this paradox, nestled into it, Repeated twice are these three embedded truths that he illustrates in the story. That is, God's grace is always available. It's always unfair. And it's always surprising. The last will be first. This parable is not primarily about the recipients of grace, but the giver of grace. It's about the vineyard owner and his extravagant generosity. New Testament scholar... Kenneth Bailey brilliantly paraphrases the vineyard owner's response to the first hour workers. It's a longer quote. I want you to listen as I read it because he says it better than anybody I've ever read. You are free to do what you like with what is yours. And am I not free to do what I like with what is mine? I chose to pay these men a living wage. You'll be able to go home to your wives and children and proudly announce that you found work and have a full day's pay. I want these other men to be able to walk in the doors of their houses with the same joy in their hearts and the same money in their pockets. I want their children to be as proud of them as yours are of you. So you worked through the heat of the day, did you? That's fine. And what do you think I was doing during the heat of the day? Enjoying a traditional siesta? 
I was on the road to and from the market trying to demonstrate compassion to others who, like you, are in need of employment. I could have sent my manager to do this. I didn't. I went myself to demonstrate solidarity with the men and help alleviate their suffering. Why are you jealous of them and angry at me? You must understand that I am not only just, I am also merciful and compassionate because mercy and compassion are part of justice. From the very first book of the Bible to the very last, the outpouring generosity of our God is a central theme. God's outpouring generosity is manifested in creation and redemption, supremely revealed through Jesus coming to earth, dying on a cross as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The Apostle Paul highlights this in Romans 8.32 in his letter to the Romans. He says, he who did not spare his own son, that's God the Father, but gave him up for us all, how will he not freely give us all things? The currency of Jesus' economy is a generous, lavish grace. Whether we come to faith in Jesus early on in life or later on in life, whether our past is filled with rebellion against God or religious conformity, we all need God's amazing grace. Without it, we are toast. The first hour workers and the 11th hour workers all need grace. You do and I do. John Newton, who wrote the brilliant, amazing grace, you read his story, he knew he was an 11th hour worker. <laughs> Debauchery life, slave trading, amazing grace. 11th hour, amazing grace. C.S. Lewis, the brilliant Oxford professor, was an atheist for a long time. Described himself as the most reluctant convert in all of England. C.S. Lewis knew amazing grace. 11th hour worker. That's who Lewis was. Perhaps the most famous 11th hour worker is the thief on the cross next to Jesus. Hard to imagine this thief, robber, all his sordid past, looks to Jesus being crucified next to him, recognizes who Jesus is, and says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus looks at him in 11.599, whatever, hour. <laughs> right? He says, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. See, God's grace is always available, always unfair, and it's always surprising. You can't predict it. You can't explain it. You can only receive it. See, you've never done something so bad or have such a horrible past that you are beyond the reach of Jesus' grace if you will come to him in repentance and faith. Where sin runs deep, his grace is more. Maybe there's an 11th hour person in your life. Perhaps a family member, a spouse, a friend, a colleague at work or at school that seems so far away from Jesus right now. Can I encourage you to keep loving them and praying for them? 
while they may seem far from Christ, Christ is never far from them. And I have a hunch that Christ's amazing grace is especially in hot and loving pursuit of 11th hour people. Why is grace so amazing? It's always available, always unfair, always surprising. There's nothing like it. We can't contain it. We can't earn it. We can't explain it. Grace is our only hope. Let me challenge us with two brief takeaways. First, grace means we can be completely secure. We all long for security. But when we place our security in ourselves and our performance, we inevitably are the most insecure people possible. Because we inevitably ask how much, right? But the question of how much is enough fades into relevance when we embrace grace, realizing our security is not about what we have or what we have done or not done or even can do, but what Jesus has done for us. In Christ, in his economy of grace, we are totally accepted, unconditionally loved, and we are cherished by him. So stop trying to earn his acceptance, his love and approval. Reach out in faith and repentance and receive his grace. It's always available. If your security is based on your performance, then another struggle you're going to have is insecurity of comparison, right? We compare all the time to others, don't we? We not only ask how much is enough, but what about others? What about them? And when we embrace the grace that God gives us, the tyranny of comparison, comparison in our life washes away and we are set free to be the people God's called us to be. See, we are all recipients of grace. Rather than compare ourselves with others, we can be grateful for the grace God has extended to them and to us. Grace tells us to stop earning it and stop comparing ourselves and to live and follow Jesus before our audience of one. Jesus calls us to follow him. Not to compare ourselves with others. Some who have given up, quote, more for the gospel, who've suffered more or the least. He says, live before me. Stop trying to earn it. Stop trying to compare. See, grace destroys all that toxic thinking, anxiety, and living wrongly. The good life is the graceful life that Jesus offers. Secondly, grace means we can be extravagantly generous. There's just no question about this. When we experience extravagant grace, we are gracious people. You can't encounter the amazing grace of Jesus without being a gracious person to others. Who's the person the hardest to forgive in your life? This is the person where amazing grace needs to be most. We are gracious with our time, our talent, our treasures. Yes, we are. We are a generous people when we've been experiencing such generous generosity from God. We are not holding on to things or people for dear life. We are letting go because we have found true life. What do we have? What do you have? What have you accomplished? What have I accomplished? that we have not been given as a grace gift. Nothing. Nothing. God's grace is amazing because it's such good news. Jesus was the ultimate first one who came last for us. He got justice so we could get grace. Grace is our only hope. See, the only question now is will you receive it? 
Will you live in its transforming and nourishing power and experience the life God has for you now and for all eternity? Jesus reminds us in this story, the God of grace comes to us where we live and he loves us right where we are. Whether we have experienced his grace in the third hour of our lives or the 11th hour, we all come equally and gratefully to the flattest space in the universe at the foot of his cross and at his table of grace. Around this table of grace called the Holy Communion Table, we partake of Jesus' generous grace. Let's pray. Lord, we have all sinned. What we have done and not done, we have sinned in the very nature of our lives. So Lord, we need you. And where our sin runs deep, your grace is more. And where your grace is found is where you are. And where you are, Lord, we are free. So nourish us, lavish us at your table of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.